In the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Before I became a priest, I worked part-time as a nanny, which comes in handy, right? Uh, For a family in Brooklyn. I would pick the kids up from school, cart them around to various sports and activities, and then drag them home, make dinner while they did homework. I would often find myself lugging lots of stuff with me for these long walks through Brooklyn streets, the groceries, some school bags, the scooter that the youngest decided they were too tired to ride. One particular day I was dragging a lot of stuff with me and it was pretty hot and muggy. And suffice to say, I was in kind of a harried mood as we approached the door of their house. Trudging up the brownstone stairs, there was someone at the top working on the doorknob, sort of looking like someone who was trying to break in, but wearing a work coat that made me think It must be a locksmith. Then I remembered the door had been sticking. The family must have gotten someone to come by and look at it. So up we trudged, and of course the two kids did not pause for a second before squeezing in past the guy working on the door, nearly knocking him over. Say excuse me, I called after them before giving a frazzled apology to the locksmith and chasing after the kids. But as I got through the door, I heard him call after me, Julia. I turned around and looked him in the eye and I realized this locksmith was Francis, my friend from church, the husband of Denise, the father of Dakari and Sanaya, the two teenagers who acolyted every Sunday, who were in the confirmation class I was teaching. I saw him every week, had coffee and donuts with him after church, worked with his mother-in-law nearly every day in the church office. I had just the day before been to his brother-in-law's funeral. I knew Francis, and yet as I hurried past the door, slightly annoyed at the intrusion in my own routine, I hadn't seen him. I'm sure every person here can think of a similar story when you didn't see someone or when you were not seen. Most of us have probably experienced both. Often stories like these have racial or class implications. I'm sure that the fact that Francis is black and that he was in work clothes was part of the reason I didn't see him for who he was, for who I knew. And it's probably why the story, which is overall a pretty innocuous one, a small moment in my life, it's probably why it still sticks in my memories, a thorn of shame and guilt. In our Old Testament story today, Holy Scripture gives us a story of people who are overlooked by the Pharaoh. But it is a triumphant story because the Pharaoh's inability to see the Hebrew women ultimately leads to his downfall. You see, the story of Moses' birth is the story of a chain of resistance led 
by women. And at its heart is the story of two midwives, Shifra and Pua. Their story begins in Egypt, years after the story of Joseph. The book of Genesis ends with the epic saga of Jacob's sons, of his favorite, Joseph, who is nearly killed by his jealous brothers, landing him in Egypt, where he successfully sheds his Jewish identity to survive, enmeshing himself in the Pharaoh's power and the non-Jewish ruling class. At the start of this new book of the Bible, the Exodus, enough time has passed, we learn, that no one can remember Joseph and how much they liked him. No one can remember how the Jewish people found their way to Egypt. The Jewish people are now considered a problem by the Egyptian rulers, a fact that is loaded with so many generations of trauma that people can't even remember why exactly it's true. The new Pharaoh's plan is genocide, the deliberate destruction of the Jewish people through the murder of all newborn boys. And note only the boys. It's a story that should resonate with Christians as it is echoed in the New Testament when Herod calls for the slaughter of the boy babies of Bethlehem because of his fear of Jesus. In that story, we can presume Herod focuses on the boys because he has heard that Jesus is a boy. But in Exodus, why just the boys? If the Pharaoh is going for a total destruction of the Jewish people, why only halfway? Presumably, he only feels threatened by the Jewish men, though as we will see, it is the women who ultimately trip him up. And this is where Shifra and Pua come in, the Hebrew, Hebrew midwives. Shifra and Pua show that they fear God, not Pharaoh. They do not carry out his orders. And to save the Hebrew boys, they appeal to what appears to be Pharaoh's own prejudicial sense of the relationship between physical difference and ethnicity. They insist that the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. The word here for vigorous shares the root of the word life. While deceiving Pharaoh, the language winks at the reader, the hearer. The Hebrew women are full of life. Their identity, their very being resists death. While the midwives ruse works initially, it does not prevent further deaths as Pharaoh publicly commands all Egyptian people to participate in the infanticide. Once again, the story highlights the resourceful resistance of a woman, Moses' mother, who is determined to save her son after seeing that he is a beautiful or good baby, the same word God uses in Genesis to describe creation. Like Noah building the ark, Moses' mother carefully builds a small basket for her infant son so that even as she casts him into the river, in compliance with the command, the infant will survive the deadly waters. And then there is one more woman who enters into the saving of Moses. 
while the midwives are motivated by their fear of the Lord and the mother by her attachment to the beautiful baby, the actions of Pharaoh's daughter emerge from her pity, her pathos. Whatever their motivations, the actions of the women align with God's own life-giving work. Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, is not intentionally serving the Hebrew God when she rescues Moses. She sees a baby and hears his cries, and she is able to acknowledge his vulnerability. By virtue of her own humanness, she recognizes his humanity and need and acts on it. Often when we're paraphrasing this story for children, we'll say that Moses is adopted immediately and raised by Pharaoh's daughter, but in fact, Moses is returned to his mother through the quick intervention of yet another woman, his sister Miriam. So you see, the story is a chain of resistance executed by women. And setting off the chain are Shifra and Pua, the midwives, when they insist on new life, drawing Moses out of the waters of birth before he is drawn out of the water again by Pharaoh's daughter. From midwives to Hebrew women to his own daughter, Pharaoh does not see their power. Pharaoh does not see women as people. He does not see them as powerful figures who could have anything to do with his own plan for domination over the Jewish people. Through the story of Moses' birth and saving, we see that God is on the side of the people who are overlooked, the people who are not seen. God's will is done through their resistance against the powers of oppression and domination. Now the question comes, as it usually does in sermons, what are we to do as Christians today when our lives are not as simple as good guys versus bad guys, the evil Pharaoh versus the honorable midwives? I think about this a lot, good guys versus bad guys, because of the fact that I am raising my own two little boys at home, Harry and Gus, nearly four and two years old. And I hope parents of little kids will back me up on this one. When you set out as a parent, you think you will be in total control of the, well, of everything, but of the media they consume. And yet somehow, much to my dismay, Harry, the nearly four-year-old, has become utterly enthralled by Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Now, I personally have no problem with the turtles, and I love how they're named after Renaissance artists. I grew up on them myself, but I hadn't seen them through the eyes of a three-year-old boy who now wants to turn everything he sees into a nunchuck and fight the bad guys. Because you see, the theme song of the show includes the line, the good guys win and the bad guys lose. And every episode is about defeating said amorphous bad guys. So the leading bad guy in our house currently is, of course, his brother Gus. And every day we tell Harry, Gus is not a bad guy. 
And so Harry asks, well then, mommy, what is a bad guy? What is a bad guy? The answer is not so simple, is it? Just the other week, we were at a friend's house to visit and splash around in their pool. While we were there, they had someone come to check out their attic. They were worried that they had a bat problem. Our friend announced, don't be scared when you go inside and see someone walking around. The bat guy is here. Harry's ears pricked up. A bad guy is here, a real bad guy. He was ready to go in there and fight. Imagine now having to explain bat guys and bad guys. So again, I wonder what is a bad guy? Who is the Pharaoh in our story, in your story today? Who is the Pharaoh for you? And of course, when are you the Pharaoh? In the gospel today, Jesus tells us that he will build his church, this church that we are all a part of now, just by being here. Jesus tells us that he will build his church on a rock. But the rock is not a rock as you might imagine it, but rather a person, Peter, a person we know will deny Jesus three times, a person we know will question Jesus, a person who will fail and fail again and again to see the truth that is around him. And nevertheless, Jesus builds his church on this imperfect person. This is the rock on which we are all standing. The rock of humanity. The rock of human existence. Of the truth that each and every one of us has always had moments of bad and good. So if you are reminded by my story about a time when I didn't see someone, a time when I overlooked someone, if you are reminded of a time when you fell short, know that this is not the end of who you are. This is, in fact, a beginning, a time to open your eyes and realize that it is on this imperfection that God builds the church, the community that holds you up and holds you accountable. God wants nothing more than for you to open your eyes and see. See the power that surrounds you, the power in the people you may not see at first, the power to change the world. Amen.